Well, if you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 2. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 2 will be our passage this Lord's Day. And as you turn there, I'll just mention to you, perhaps you have heard the expression before, the king is dead, long live the king. Now, this is an expression that's been used uh, throughout the world, throughout different monarchies. When one king passes, another takes the throne. That, that phrase, the king is dead, long live the king, is to let the people know this continuation of reign, that while one king has died, another has already stepped into that king's place. It's to uh, comfort the people. It's to protect them from chaos. And yet as we come to the scripture this morning, the second Samuel chapter 2, we find not the proclamation, the king is dead, long live the king, but simply the king is dead. Saul has died, and now the kingdom is in chaos. You may recall in our study from a few weeks ago that after Saul dies and three of his sons die in battle, that the, the Israelites just scatter. They, they abandon their homes and their cities and the promised land. The Philistines come and occupy those homes. That There's great chaos at this point. Now, we know the story, we know the big picture, we know that, that David will become the king, he will reign as king, and we'll see the beginning of that reign today. But at this point, there's still chaos. And the question is, what's going to happen next? How will David come into reign, and will the people support that reign? And we'll see answers to those questions as we walk through this chapter this morning, Second Samuel chapter 2, so... Out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read this passage for us, and as we get now a picture of what's going to happen to the kingdom. This is what God's holy word says. After David's lament, after this David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And David, or excuse me, and the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And when they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant for Saul the Lord is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, the son of Ner, 
And the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out to meet them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men rise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them rise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, and the, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head, and thrust his sword into the opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore the place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Ashiel. Now Ashiel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Ashiel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Ashiel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Ashiel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Ashiel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back, and he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Ashiel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Geah on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would have not given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Maanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, they were missing from David's servants, 19 men besides Ashiel. And the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Ashiel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which is at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron you would pray with me. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we find battle, fighting, bloodshed, death, chaos, and competition. We 
finds your anointed king, David, beginning his earthly rule, but it is a rule that is opposed and is challenged. Lord, help us as we walk through this passage together to see how that relates to us today and how that points us to Jesus, that we might respond to the gospel of Christ in repentance and faith. We ask that you would do this work through the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Can I ask you a question this morning? Perhaps this is something you're familiar with. Uh, how many of you have ever found yourself uh, sitting down in front of a television, flipping through the channels, only to say, there's nothing on for you to watch? Anybody ever had that experience? I see just about everybody nodding your head. Hey, it's quite ironic when you think about it, because... Uh, we live in a day and age where we have endless options. In fact, I read just this week that the average household has over 190 channels. And most folks who have that many channels also have all kinds of on-demand options. Uh, if you've got a service like Netflix, you've got 6,000 different movies and TV shows you could watch. If you've got Amazon Prime, you've got over 20,000 options you could watch. And then there's countless other services, countless other things that you can do. So many options out there, yet with tens of thousands of options, it is still very possible for us to sit there and say, we're uninterested. <laughs> we're not unengaged by any of them. And it's not just with television and movies and shows. We're, we're kind of like this in all sort of ways. And perhaps you've had the experience where uh, you were going out to eat one night and you uh, start driving down a street and on that road there are dozens of places to eat and you turn to the person beside you and say, you know, I, I just don't think I want to eat in any of these places. And perhaps you find yourself in situations where you go shopping and you go to an outlet mall and you have hundreds of stores and thousands of options and yet you leave saying, well, I just couldn't find anything. I was reminded of this mindset just the other day. As I mentioned already, uh, Sandy and I were with Caroline at Cincinnati this week for a surgery. And as we were traveling back, uh, she wanted something to drink. So I stopped at a gas station. And this is one of those gas stations where you walk in. And there's literally just hundreds of options of beverages and things you can choose from. And as I was standing there looking for the apple juice, I noticed this family with young kids. They looked like they were about to go on a trip together. And the mother was gathering up all these options for the kids, and she turns to one and says, well, what do you want? And as he stares at these hundreds of options, he says, there's just nothing here I like. Well, we kind of live in this time, this unique point in history where we seem to have endless opportunities, endless options, and yet we seem to be uninterested, unengaged, and quite bored with all of them. And if we're not careful, that attitude affects the way we come to the Word of God. That this Word that has been handed down to us, this Word that has been preserved through generations, this Word that contains 66 different books, nearly 1,200 chapters and over 30,000 verses. And it is quite possible for us to open up this Word, much like we pick up the TV remote, flip through it for a little bit and say, there's just nothing for me here. I want to challenge that way of thinking this morning. 
I want us to stop and consider that every book, every chapter, every verse is the inspired word of God. And he has given it to us, his people, for a purpose. We're reminded of this through the word of God in 2 Timothy where we read this, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And it's important that we consider this as we come to chapters like 2 Samuel chapter 2, where we read unfamiliar names and unfamiliar places and stories of battle and of bloodshed. It's easy for us just to kind of flip through that like we flip through a channel and walk away saying, well, I don't really see how that applies to me today. I mean, historically, this is an event that took place 3,000 years ago. How could that possibly relate to what you and I face this week in our lives? Well, I think as we walk through this word together, we'll see exactly how it applies and how it relates. And we see it as we read 2 Samuel chapter 2 through the lens of all of Scripture as we consider how God is using David and the kingdom of David to prepare his people and to point us towards our King Jesus. And so I want us to walk through this passage today and just simply consider what do we read in this context? How does it point us to Jesus and how does that relate to us today? And so we'll begin there with the first point in your outline, this first section where we simply see that a king is anointed. And so Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. The brothers, two of them of Jonathan, are dead. We, we expect at this point in the story for David to finally become the king. I mean, it's been quite some time if you've been studying with us through First and Second Samuel, where God anointed David as king, and then there seems to be this prolonged period where uh, Saul won't accept that, and Saul's pursuing him, and, and you're just kind of holding on for that day when Saul is removed and David becomes king. The king is dead, and then long live the king. Well, the king is dead, but it's not quite the transition we might expect. In fact, what we find here is that, that after taking time to lament the loss of Saul and of Jonathan, David's very first response is to stop and inquire of the Lord. Verse 1, David inquired of the Lord. Now that phrase, that statement should stand out to us for a number of reasons. First, we're reminded here that the king previous to David, Saul, his downfall came as a result of not inquiring of the Lord. He trusted in himself. He was impatient. He wouldn't wait on the Lord. He wouldn't wait on the Lord's ways. He, he took matters into his own hands time and time again. And he didn't inquire of the Lord. He, he all times a religious superstition. But he didn't truly seek out God and his will. And yet now we see David is doing that. And that reminds us that David hasn't always done that. And David won't always do that. But we certainly come to a point now where David has grown and matured and he understands his need to seek God's counsel before he takes any steps on his way to the throne. Now think about that for a moment. David is in a situation where God has clearly revealed his will to him. Years before this, David has been anointed to be the next king over Israel. 
David has trusted in the Lord at times when he could have taken Saul out. And at each of those times, he has not taken Saul out because he said, Saul is the Lord's anointed. How dare he raise his hand to the Lord's anointed? And the conclusion he's come to is if God wants Saul taken out, that God is going to have to take Saul out. And that's exactly what God has now done. And now David has lamented Saul's death. And so now our expectation might be that David would just march in, be declared king, and begin to rule. But it seems David here is very concerned, not so much with the path he'll be on. He knows the path, but he wants to make sure God ordains and blesses every step along that path. John Calvin, in his notes on this passage, says this about David. Although he, David, was on the way, he still knew that he could err seriously if God did not guide him. And so David here shows us that that need to constantly be seeking the will of God, to constantly be seeking the guidance of God. And so David inquires of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? Now remember where David is at this point. David, long before, had fled to the land of the Philistines. And there David is living in the land of the Philistines. And now Saul is dead. And now David knows the path. He, he needs to go back home. He needs to go back to Israel. But he first asked the Lord, shall I go up to the cities of Judah? And God says, yes, you should. Then David asked more specifically, well, where do I need to go? And he tells him to go to Hebron. Now perhaps you're curious. Perhaps you've read this passage beforehand or just in hearing it now, you wonder, well, how exactly did David inquire of the Lord? <laughs> well, what was this like? Was this a, an audible conversation between God and David? Was David using the means that God had presented to the high priest and to others along the way? We've seen the use of the Urim and the Thummim. How was it that David inquired of the Lord? And in all my study, the answer is this, we don't know. Well, we don't know exactly how he did it. But what we know is that he did it. And what we know is that when he inquired of the Lord, that God answered him. And he tells him to go to Hebron. Now, Hebron is a familiar place to us if we've studied through the Old Testament and the history of God's people. This is the place where Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah were all buried. It stood southwest of Jerusalem. And it's there at Hebron that the, that the men of Judah anoint David as king over Judah. And again, if you're following along here, this might be the point where you kind of step back and say, well, wait a second, that's, that, that's not exactly how it should play out, is it? I mean, Judah is one of 12 tribes of Israel. David is to be the king over Israel. And yet here we have David just going to Hebron in this hill country and, and this one tribe anointing him as their king. Well, what about the rest of Israel? Well, those things will come in time. But for now, we should note that God's chosen king is now visibly ruling on the earth. Though he's ruling in a way that people perhaps did not expect. He's ruling in Hebron, over only one tribe. By all accounts, this is a small beginning for David. God's anointed king tucked away in the hills of Judah. Not exactly how David or the people or perhaps us today would have expected him to begin his reign. And yet, this should strike a familiar chord with us. 
that this idea of a kingdom being inaugurated, of a king coming in a way that's unexpected, in a way that seems much more humble, in a way that seems to lack fanfare, and in a way that they were not expecting, and yet that's exactly how God chooses to move. We read about another example of that in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Isaiah writes it this way in Isaiah Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like the root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So those passages that don't seem to speak in a way that we might expect God to speak of the one who would be king, not just over Israel, but the king of all kings, our Lord Jesus. And yet this picture we have of David and the beginning of his reign, it points us directly forward to Jesus in his reign. We see that picture here. And so, we're reminded that the establishment of David's kingdom is pointing the people towards the establishment of the king that will come, King Jesus, who, like David, begins his reign in a way that is humble and meek, and unexpected. And just like what we see with King Jesus, we see in this passage how David's rule is challenged and is opposed, which brings us to the second point there in your outline. A king is opposed. A king is dead, long live the king. That's not exactly the cry of the people of Israel at this point. That the tribe of Judah has anointed David. David has reached out to others outside of the tribe of Judah. And you'll notice there that little commentary where David's told about what the men of Gabesh Gilead did. The men of Gabesh Gilead were obviously very loyal to Saul. They were the ones who'd gone in and risked their own lives to retrieve the body of Saul. David hears of this kindness and he sends word to them to thank them for his ki- that kindness. But, but you can almost see a little political maneuvering here from David as he says to them, you, you are loyal to Saul, you bless Saul, but the king is dead and now I've been anointed the king by the tribe of Judah, this clan. There's this sense where he's inviting others in to affirm his reign. And chances are, I think David probably did that with different groups. And so word eventually goes down to Abner. You may recall Abner. Abner was the commander of Saul's army. He was Saul's right-hand man. He was a man who was faithful to Saul. He was a man who had been right there with Saul in Saul's pursuit of David. And now some time has passed. Saul is dead. Three of Saul's sons are dead. And word comes to him that David has been anointed by the people of Judah to be the next king. The king is dead, but he doesn't want David as king. And so he takes matters into his own hands. He declares Ish-bosheth, who was another son of Saul, who was not killed in battle, to be the king over Israel. 
And so now the picture we have here is the house of Judah continues to follow David, but there's a divided kingdom because these other tribes are following and remaining loyal to the house of Saul and to Abner and to Ishbosheth. And so we have this picture here of Abner and others opposing the Lord's anointed king. Now, it's helpful here to, to pull back and, and think of the big picture we've seen so far because if not, we would be faulty to think that somehow Abner didn't realize who David was. I mean, at first glance, if we're just flipping through the channels, we might come to this narrative and say, well, well, well Abner didn't know, and, and Abner was loyal to Saul, and now Saul was dead, and it's natural for the son of Saul to become the king. And so he finds one of Saul's sons, and he declares him king. But, but when we stop flipping through, and we stop for a moment and consider the big picture, we realize that's not the case. In fact, you can go back to 1 Samuel 26, and if you remember in 1 Samuel 26, that was one of those encounters where David could have taken Saul's life. And in fact, a familiar name that we saw in this passage, one of the brothers of Joab goes with David and sneaks into Saul's camp. And if you remember, Saul's laying there sleeping, and who's right beside him? It's Abner, the commander of his army. And so the picture here is that David and his servant could have taken out Saul, and likely at that moment they would have taken out Abner as well. This was Saul's right-hand man. But you'll recall that David said, no, we're, we're not going to do this. This is the Lord's anointed. And so the next day it is Abner that David call, calls out to. And there's this exchange between David and Abner and David and Saul. And in that exchange it becomes very clear from the lips of Saul that Saul was wrong to pursue David. That God had blessed David. That whatever David had before him would be anointed and would be blessed by God. Abner had a front row seat to the will of God. Abner knew without a doubt that David was to be the next anointed king over Israel. And Abner, knowing the Lord's will, opposed the Lord's will. Now, this was no simple mistake or misunderstanding this was an opposition to the sovereign will of God. And friends, that is not a place you want to be. We're reminded of that from the second psalm that we read earlier. And psalm 2 is a picture of what Abner does here, isn't it? Opposing the Lord's anointed. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. When we read that psalm and we think how foolish it must be for the kings of the earth to plot against the Lord's anointed. look at Abner and we say how foolish it must be to oppose the sovereign will of God. But friend, how often do we do the same thing? How many times do we, the people of God, come to the Word of God and read the very clear, revealed plan of God, the will of God, what we are to do, what we are not to do, and we oppose it. How often when God's people come to us out of concern and call out sin in our lives, how often do we respond to that 
offer of grace and mercy and discipline with, who are you to tell me how to live? Well, what gives you the right to tell me what I can do and not do? How often do we not even stop and consider what the will of God is in our lives? And we're just preoccupied with what our will is in our lives. With our wants and our desires. How often do we run just headstrong and headfast into exactly what we want to do. And not even stop and consider what it would look like to inquire of the Lord. How often is prayer kind of just this bookmark we note at the end. Oh yeah, well make sure you pray about this. Instead of the place that we start. It's easy for us to look at Psalm 2 and the nations and to look at 2 Samuel 2 and Abner and say, well, how dare they oppose God? Let me ask you this morning, how are you, how am I, how are we in opposition to God this morning? How many times have we said, no, Lord? Dr. Tim Booker was pastor of this church for some years. He still serves as part of the faculty of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's one of my professors. He was one of the reasons used by God that I'm here as your pastor today and that connection I have with Dr. Booker. And I can remember him several times in different classes for bringing up that expression, no Lord. And looking to us as students and saying, listen, you, you may think at times you can say no Lord, but you really can't ever say no Lord. Because if if Jesus is truly your sovereign, if he's truly your Lord, if he's truly the one on the throne calling the shots, then you can't say no to him. Because he's Lord. And if you are saying no to him, then that would be an indication that he's not your sovereign, he's not on the throne, he's not the one calling the shots, you are. You find yourself at times coming to the Word of God and the will of God and living in opposition to it. Understand these are not little trivial matters. This bears the weight of your eternity and your soul. The Gospel is clear to us. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We come out of the womb and get on the throne and demand that we call the shot. And it takes an act of a sovereign God in our lives to help our eyes to open up to see that we indeed all are sinners. And we deserve rightfully, justfully, the wages of our sin is death. We deserve the judgment of God. God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet wretched, miserable, depraved sinners, Jesus paid our debt. He took our place on the cross. What do we read in Romans 10? If we will confess Jesus as Lord, if we'll confess Him as our Sovereign, if we'll say to Jesus, Jesus, I want You on the throne of my life. I am stepping aside. I am putting aside all my interests, all my plans. I want to live for You and You alone. I want You to be Lord. And we can't say no to that. We may struggle. We may stumble. 
We don't live in opposition. Because he's our Lord and he's our sovereign. And the picture we have here of Abner is the picture we have of so many of us today. Where God's word is clear and his will is clear. And yet we defy it. And we demand our own way. That was Abner's mistake. I wonder how many of us are making that same mistake today. A king is anointed, a king is opposed, and finally, a kingdom is challenged. What follows now when this king is opposed is that a kingdom is challenged and nothing good comes from this challenge. What, What follows in this battle of Gibeon is fighting and bloodshed and death. And the sadness of all of this, when we step back and we look at the big picture, the big lens of scriptures, is these are God's people. That this is Israel. That this isn't the Israelites against the Philistines. This this is the Israelites against the Israelites. This is the people of God against the people of God. This is brother against brother. And nothing good comes from it. We have this picture where There's a fierce battle between David's men and Abner's men, and Abner's men are beaten. Then we have one of Joab's brothers pursuing Abner in this exchange between the two where Abner strikes him down and kills him. There's fighting, there's battles, and there's death. And when it's all tallied up at the end, we find that 20 of David's men are dead, and 360 of Abner's men are dead. Divided kingdom, a suffering kingdom. So what, what do we do with that? Well, what's the application of the battle of Gibeon in our lives today? Well, I read some helpful thoughts. I'll just share them with you this morning. One commentator said it this way. This chapter shows the grave peril of those who refuse the kingdom of God through the king whom he has appointed to rule over heaven and earth. This episode in David's reign thus points forward to a greater king who had emerged from his line, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God has anointed King Jesus today just as he anointed a king at that time. He has decreed that the Lord Jesus is ultimately going to rule over heaven and earth. He has declared that every knee is going to bow before him and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord of all. But just as Abner did not happily embrace the word that David was to be king over all Israel. So many today refuse to embrace the word that Jesus Christ is God's anointed. If Abner's rebellion against David caused so much turmoil in the world and so much loss to himself and those who followed him, how much greater are the wages of sin for those who rebel against the Lord Jesus God's kingdom can never fail. So how much wiser is it for sinners to repent, confess their guilt to God, to seek the forgiveness that he offers through the blood of his son Jesus, and to enjoy peace with God and eternal life. Friends, that's where this passage points us today. It points us to ourselves. And it points us to the question, are we living for God's kingdom today or for our own? I mean, Jesus taught us how to pray, didn't he? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that just a a routine thing we say, or do we really mean it when we say it? 
So do we really desire the kingdom of God to come and for God's will to be done through us and through our lives? Are we willing to set ourselves aside? Are we willing to die to ourselves and deny ourselves that God's kingdom might rule and reign? Are we living for the kingdom of God and longing for the day of Jesus' return? I believe that's the question we are faced with as we consider this second chapter in 2 Samuel. And as we consider that question, friend, if you come to a point of realization through the power of the Holy Spirit that you're living for yourself and not for God, that you're living opposed to the will of God, if you're not living in obedience to the Lord's anointed, then the invitation today is to repent and to trust in Christ. To say what you truly can say today. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. That is the call and that's the invitation. So if you would stand together with me as I pray for us. And as we go into this time of response. Father, I pray that our response to you today would indeed be yes, Lord. I pray, God, for anyone gathered with us today who's yet to confess Christ as Lord and yet to believe in their heart that you raised Christ from the dead. I pray that today would indeed be the day of salvation for them, that they would be awakened, that they would be repentant, and that they would trust in you. And I pray for each of us gathered here this morning, Lord, that we would sincerely, honestly ask the question, are we living for you and your kingdom? Are we seeking first and foremost your will? And if we find that we're not in any way, in any area, in any attitude, then Lord, help us to repent and to trust in Jesus today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Church family and guests, we're going to offer now a time of response. We're going to sing together. We will glorify hymn number 213. And as we sing, we invite you to come. If God is leading you to come today and Confess, yes, Lord, that that Jesus indeed has become Lord of your life to respond to that gospel call publicly before this body of believers, to to follow through in obedience, that next step of baptism, to, to start the process of joining this church family, or perhaps the Lord is just leading you to come that that I might pray for you, that others might pray for you as well. Whatever it is, we invite you to sing and we invite you to respond as the Lord leads.